This is the Smarts and Stripes Podcast. We cover every bump, every spot, and chat with all the talent around the world of wrestling. Here's your host, Bill Matz, former WWE referee Kevin Keenan, and Eric Golden. This week, Smarts and Stripes goes back into the vault. And yes, it's very weird to go back into the vault three episodes into a new podcast. But hey, we make the rules around here. And by the way, this interview is fantastic and it needs to be heard again. Considered the father of wrestling by most in the industry, Tommy Dreamer sat down with Kevin Keenan and Turtle as he went through his career, the rise of ECW, why he loved doing it in Philadelphia, the ECW-WWE merger, all the stories that happened from there, and a lot more you don't want to miss this here's tommy dreamer with kevin keenan and turtle he is the innovator of violence tommy dreamer what's up tommy thank you very much i thought you were going to say robbie e but uh <laughs> he's glad ne- to be on he's next give accolades you can't give a lot of accolades to robbie e. well you certainly you certainly can no shows wrestling shows <laughs> <laughs> well you we certainly can and when he heard that i had a podcast he actually texted me would you like me to be a guest and i reluctantly we're going to put him on next week <laughs> Well, that's all right. This is the debut episode. I'm happy to be the debut. It's all downhill uh, from here unless you get cool Philadelphia-related people. Well, speaking of Philadelphia, being that we're a Philadelphia-related uh, podcast here, Tommy, Philadelphia-based podcast, Philadelphia has meant so much to you over your career. Now, with Philadelphia being the home of ECW and ECW now being out of business 16 years, what is it about the city that keeps you coming back? Oof. Uh, I always say uh, Tom Laughlin, which is my real name, was born in Yonkers, New York, but uh, Tommy Dreamer was born in Philadelphia. It was a place where I was able to, you know, they have the horrible uh, stigma of being one of the worst places to perform in front of and like the roughest crowd for throwing snowballs at Santa Claus. Now, man, they're, they're real. They're blue collar people. Always have been. Always will people. Always will. And they also kind of always saw through the BS, and which is what I love about it. And it was a place where, you know, I got to become Tommy Dreamer and be who I wanted to be uh, instead of what I thought I had to be in the wrestling business. And it was, you know, the underground place where wrestling pretty much uh, changed the wrestling business in ECW. And you got to watch Tommy Dreamer grow up uh, character-wise, person-wise. And I mean, I have so many friends and, you know, people from that have supported me my entire career. And, you know, every time, no matter what, you know, was going on in my life, I know every time, you know, I went to Philadelphia, it was, it was, it was a great time. And I, and I do, I love, I love the city. I uh, love that ECW arena. Uh, I, I witnessed so much magical stuff there, uh, starting as a wrestler and, you know, then doing so much behind the scenes and just watching it grow and, being able to go back there when WWE brought ECW back and that was our first show. We kicked it off. It, it's always just been special. And then, you know, for my own company, I was hardcore bringing it there and, you know, pretty much selling out the place every time we go. It's just, it's special. And, you know, whenever I get to go back, it was, you know, when I went to back to WWE, I guess it was for the horrible slammies. Uh, and, you know, they called me up. Triple H called me up. I was like, "Hey, you want to come down and uh, do something?" I was like, "Sure." And uh, just you know, one of those when in doubt, break the glass, and Tommy Dreamer will appear somewhere in Philadelphia. Would a concept of e- like ECW have worked in any other city? Would it have similar success anywhere else? Uh, I don't think so. No, it was right place, right time, right venue, 
write everything. You know, it was the perfect storm. Uh, it just grew. And I, I mean, what the beauty of Philadelphia is people would watch that. And still to this day, man, and I'm blessed because every time I walk out through the curtain, you know, they chant ECW. And people will tell me about, they'll talk about the fans and the people that sat. You know, they'll be like, oh, what about the hat guy? What about the guy who wore the Hawaiian shirt? What about that guy? Like, they'll ask me questions about the fans. And then if you think about the pure lunacy of wrestling, there was a definite, once Queen started becoming like the madhouse of extreme, there was a rivalry between venues that were so far apart, but they still loved ECW. But I mean, there was, I mean, I remember there would be chants like F Philly in New York and then F New York in Philly. Uh, it just, you know, that's from, you know, I feel like the Giants and the Eagles and the, the Mets and the Phillies, but it's just to have that in a, with a wrestling program is just, it's awesome. And like people would also, on message boards, but I can't believe you guys did that in Queens and not in Philly. Or how could you do that in Philly and not in Queens? It was just, it was, it was great. It really was. With all the personalities and different types of people that came through the doors of ECW, what made the entire thing work? Oof, uh, it, we were really a bunch of misfits. And, and like I said, it's a blue collar town. I really think it's the, it was the hard work. And you, I mean, my first ECW show there was 34 people there and you could watch it grow each and every week on uh on tv and then you know it was it was like south park you know i i just watched last night the the 21st episode uh season of south park when south park first took off it was everyone knew what cartoons were but then they were like hey but no there's this uh cartoon that these kids curse and they were talking to like a Christmas poo and that's kind of how ECW took off it's like ah, we all know professional wrestling and you know that time in the 90s wrestling was on the down down slope it was all characters like you know the garbage men and like WCW was like real night it was not in a good place and there was like oh it's professional wrestling but there's these crazy guys in Philadelphia that are doing it for real and that's kind of how it all happened. You know, we had the the mastermind of, of Paul Heyman, and then we had a lot of characters and guys who were able to take risks. And when I say characters, I mean something different. Shane Douglas at the time was cutting promos against other people. Now that's what we call Twitter. Um, there was a tag team called the public enemy that was, you know, doing stuff that never had been seen before. There was this scarred up dude named Sabu who was so ahead of his time and, and incorporating tables into uh, his matches. And, you know, everyone now has seen, you know, tables. It's, you know, a common occurrence where they even have table matches, but that was so before it's time. And, uh, we had then this guy who was drinking a beer and smoking cigarettes called the Sandman. And then there was this other kid named Tommy Dreamer who would get his uh, butt beat. There was this guy who was dumping people on his head named uh, Taz. And, you know, Paul mixed all of those guys together. And then when guys would leave or just the company would expand, you had, you know, your Rob Van Dams, your Dudleys. And, and Paul was great with, if your competition went one way and it's kind of still how I think you go the other way, the wrestling business was cartoonish 
and, you know, geared towards kids. And Paul went with violence. And then when everyone started, you know, copying our stuff, Paul went to wrestling. And then, you know, when the guys who were the wrestlers, the Eddie Guerrero's, Dean Malenko's, Chris Benoit's, when they went to WCW, Paul then brought in the luchadors. And, you know, so it was always, it was always different. So that's, that's what was the beautiful part about it. And the fans just appreciated how great it was. I dude, when I seriously, I, there will not be, and Kevin, you've been with me. People will just randomly come up to me and say something about ECW or I remember this. And it, it's, it's on an almost daily basis. The moment I leave my house, I'm Tommy dreamer. And <laughs> they're like, dude, I remember when, and they'll tell me something. And now with the WWE network, we all uh, we get to see what we all did again, and it's it's great. I love it. That's something I can certainly attest to. Now, Tommy, with companies like Ring of Honor and Impact Wrestling, both companies that you have worked for for a time period or two, they've both been around longer than ECW was in business. But during their time in the business, they are yet to make the splash in the industry or develop the following that ECW had in its day, even in the day of social media. Is that an indictment of them or a testament to ECW? That is an excellent question. Um, I think Ring of Honor has finally found their niche. And, you know, with these, I mean, people don't remember, we were also on the fast track. Yes, we were. Uh, we were during an amazing time in the business uh, when, every, you know, the Monday Night Wars, and we were, you know, blowing up when everything crashed and WC, WWE bought it, that's when, you know, these other federations came about. So the wrestling business, you know, many people still tell me I stopped watching wrestling when, or after ECW, I stopped watching it, or it's just because like it was no longer super duper cool or commonplace. And it was also during a time where the business was just like, you know, kind of down. But I think now Ring of Honor has definitely uh, established themselves. So is, so has New Japan. They've been around for a long time, but you know they've established themselves with having some you know great talent. And again, the WWE fueling that system where oh Samoa Joe he, he cut his teeth in in Ring of Honor or CM Punk guys like that they all cut their teeth there, and now it's you know oh look they're here. You just spoke about ECW towards the end, uh, and you were a guy that was called the heart and soul of the company. Was it hard for you knowing it was, the company was on its last legs and you couldn't do much about it? Uh, it was devastating. That was uh, a really bad time in my personal life, too, because I was just, I was so depressed. Uh, to say I couldn't do anything about it, you know, it's been well documented. Uh, in WWE, there were things that could have been done to save it. But, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't realize myself included that Paul was kind of in Vince McMahon's pocket the entire time. So, you know, that was one, there was, you know, there was so many behind the scenes stuff, but yeah, that was a, it was a horrible time because I never thought it would go away. Like I just thought it would be around forever. I mean, and I had, I had, you know, a lot of, if it took off the way I thought it would be, yes, I had stood to, you know, financially gain. I lost a lot of money, too. I was putting my parents' money into it. Paul Heyman was putting his parents' money into it. Uh, but, you know, I, I look at everything, and I I love – it's my history. It's my past. And 
when I die, I will be most remembered for being Tommy Dreamer and from ECW in Philadelphia. Uh, but I learned from those mistakes and you don't dwell on the past. You got to move forward. And if all those things didn't happen, you know, if I would have went to WCW all the times that they offered me jobs, I wouldn't be Tommy Dreamer today. The fans wouldn't have stuck by me the way I have stuck by them. And I also wouldn't have my own company and, and doing good uh, with all that stuff. So everything happens for a reason. Learn from the past, move forward, watch it on the WWE network and think about a great time. You get to experience it, but also experience, uh, you know, experience new things. That's what for me and my own company, people don't realize how, what great things I saw every single week. And that's kind of what I want to do when I have my own shows. I want people to experience the greatness known as professional wrestling. Of course, we're talking to Tommy Dreamer, the innovator of violence. House of Hardcore returns to Philadelphia, the 2300 Arena, Saturday night, November 18th. Tickets are available, houseofhardcore.net. Also follow Tommy on Twitter, at the Tommy Dreamer, and House of Hardcore on Twitter, at House of Hardcore. Now, Tommy, take me into the moment you found out it was over. Some people found out the company was done when Paul Heyman walked out on Monday Night Raw. They were watching it live. How did you find out ECW was officially over? Um, I had a lot of, I guess we were all in denial. It's kind of like when you, uh, hear stories of, you know, uh, a spouse cheating or a spouse leaving, getting divorced. And you're just like, wait, where, where did that come from? And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, wait, let me start thinking for me. I was driving back on an independent wrestling show from Boston. I stopped off at the Hartford Civic Center to see Bubba and Devon, and they were trying to get me to go to, you know, meet some people and go work. And I was still like, hey, guys, I'm just here to hang out with you guys. And after I went to that show, I got in my car. And when I tell you, it was probably just got on to 95. And it was Paulie called me maybe 15 minutes after I left the venue, which talks about how his stooge uh, alert was, was going back then. <laughs> and he was like, Hey, I heard you were up at uh Hartford. And I was like, yeah, he goes, I'm debuting on raw tomorrow. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, I'm, he goes, we're doing an angle, but I'm debuting on raw tomorrow. Uh, and I was just like, it's over. And he's like, we're going to be doing something. You know, it's going to try to lead to something, but uh, I'm debuting. And I was just like, uh, okay, man. And I was just kind of like, like, I'm getting on a plane. So I was like, he goes, trust me, this is going to be good. We're going to work it. And I don't even remember what he said after that. I remember just having to pull over right after that. And, and like, I was like, I was numb. I was angry. I was probably crying. And I was just like, it's done. You know, I just, it was over. And I was, I mean, flooded with emotions just because of, you know, there was a lot of stuff. Did you have a plan in place for yourself for what's next? No, dude, I was 29 and unemployed. <laughs> Most people don't realize, you know, I gave my 20s to ECW. I gave my 30s to WWE and I gave my 40s to myself. But when ECW went out of business, I was 29 years old. And I went from getting offered, you know, uh, what over seven hundred thousand dollars to go to WCW to, and I didn't, and now I'm, I'm unemployed. I have nothing. 
and I just bought a house uh, with my parents in Connecticut, and I now had a mortgage. You know, a lot of what I did at, in ECW, I lived at home. You know, I I had I had an apartment with Beulah, but I was home, and I couldn't have done that if I didn't have the parents that I had, and you know, the support system that I had. And then I finally, we had to sell our home in Yonkers and I moved to Connecticut because of my, my family being closer. My sister was up there and now I had a mortgage payment. I had real world things and I was just like, okay, what do I do now? So, uh, and I was unemployed for seven months. July 2001, you come into WWE during the invasion angle. Walk me through the process of bringing you into WWE at that time. Doing indies. Uh, and one of the better calls I ever got, I didn't, I met him a couple times, but I didn't know him randomly. Jim Ross had called me. Uh, and when the guys, when I tell you it was the worst time in my life, I was, uh, I was 230 pounds cause I was depressed and not eating. You can tell I'm not depressed uh, and I'm happy because I <laughs> eat all the time now. Um, and uh, Jim Ross just called me up. He's like, hey, Tommy, it's Jim Ross, Talent Relations. You're you're on our radar and just want you to hang in there, buddy. I'm just telling you, hang in there. You'll be here. And then I didn't hear from him again until like three, maybe three months after that. And uh, I remember the week before I was in Seattle I had Paulie always calling me and kind of giving me false hope. I was actually, Paulie called me and told me I was supposed to start at uh, WrestleMania where the TLC match and they had like Lita, Rhino, and Spike run in. And I was supposed to, Paul called me and said, hey, you're, you're debuting at WrestleMania, which I thought would have been a great, you know, debut. That didn't happen. Um... <clears throat> And then he was like, oh, they're going to build the hardcore division around you. Uh, I didn't know I was getting all these mixed, you know, signals. Then I was actually working on a ECW-esque reunion show up in Buffalo. I had done, I had two shows for Dusty Rhodes uh, on a Friday and a Saturday. And then I was flying up to Buffalo on a Sunday and I was down in Atlanta. Anyway, the week before I was in Seattle doing indies. And, uh, that's where Monday night Raw was and they had the uh, Booker T buff Bagwell match. And it was, you know, with a WCW match on Monday night raw and it was the align. It just crapped the bed. It was really, really bad. And then Thursday, uh, Jim Ross is secretary called me up, Nicole. And she was just like, Hi, this is uh, Nicole, and uh, we want to bring you into TV on Monday. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I worked Friday for Dusty in Atlanta, Saturday for Dusty in like the Atlanta area, flew to Buffalo on that Sunday, did the show uh, up in, uh, I think it was like Canada area, Buffalo, Canada, I don't remember. And then flew back down to Atlanta on that Monday. And that's where the whole alliance thing started. Uh, and when I, even when I debuted, I wasn't even under contract. It was funny. Like, you know, it was first time too. I was with Van Dam. And then, you know, they had told us 
what we were going to do right before we went out. He's like, you're nervous. And I laughed and he goes, yeah, me neither. And then we were having a conversation and they're like, go. And like, I go, dude, we got to go. He's like, okay, let's go. <laughs> and then that's how that all started. And for me, that was totally, there was a lot of moments in my career where I was like, this is what it could have been. And I totally had envisioned what ECW should have been because we were in WCW building uh, in Atlanta at the Phillips Arena. And I don't know what it's called now. And it was sold out. And we were all there. We shocked the wrestling business again because that's when we joined up with the and formed the alliance. And it was an entire sold out building chanting for ECW in WCW, WCW, WCW territory and on WWE TV. And I was like, this is how it should have been. Like, this is what ECW should have been. I remember just like, even though we had to hit all our spots, I was just like, so taken back. And then, uh, that was uh, definitely a defining moment where we, you know, it, it was our job in ECW to always get people to be like, huh? And that was one of those last times we really got people to be like, whoa. So it was, that was special to me. It really was. The evasion angle was heavily criticized. I mean, heavily criticized, as we all know. If Tommy Dreamer was booking the invasion back then, what would you have done differently and how would the blow off have gone? Uh, I don't remember a lot of it. I know it, it tanked. It tanked because of politics and egos. Most people don't realize there that it was it was over. WCW was over. ECW was over. You owned everything. It could have went so so high. And if you go back and look at the buy rates for that pay per view, it was off the charts. And then they blew it because the next pay per view it was. It was done. It, I mean, it was not even nowhere near what they wanted because they blew it. And it was all blown because of ego. They had it basically, oh, look, we won the war. Great. And you own it already, so you really did win the war. And then it was over. I don't remember all of the specifics, but it could have been, you know, done. That was, it could have been made like it was an NWO which, you know, put the business on tango, but it was all really just a lot of ego and luck we did it. So, yeah. Fast, fast forward it. a few years and you're working in talent relations with the company. How does the talk of the first one-night stand pay-per-view come up and were you all for it? Uh, yeah. Uh, the success of the DVD. Rob Van Dam went to Vince and said, hey, most of these guys work here. And look how good the DVD went. And that's kind of how that went. And then uh, we did it. It was successful. I wrote the whole show. I agented every match. Uh, I actually had a fight for Paul Heyman to be on the show because they were did not like Paul at that time. And uh, it really, really worked out well. Paul added some stuff on the show like he did. And it was perfect. He added that promo for himself. He added the thing at the end with the tie-in with the WWE guys. And then uh, it was just after that, I was like, whoa, they're going to see it in me. I know the pay-per-view did was off the charts. Uh, the house live gate was off the charts. And I was like, oh, they're going to see it in me. They're going to see I could do it. And it was just Monday. But that was another 
defining moment for me because, again, if you ever, there's pictures of it all over the internet. I'm bloody, I'm bloody bad. I was lit on fire and uh, Bubba had came me so hard in my ear. I was deaf in one ear and also, like they said, I may lose my ear due to trauma. And I have a, the biggest smile on my face because, again, that was where this is how it should have been. It's also giving it closure for me. Uh, I was really, really happy. And I, like, I was like, wow, this is how it should have been. It wasn't. So after the success of the 2005 One Night Stand pay-per-view, the talk starts starts to happen that ECW is going to be brought back as a full-time touring brand, which turtles right around the time I started talking with the company and ultimately what I got brought in for. But before it became what we now know is WWE ECW, Tommy, uh, how did you understand a full-time ECW touring brand was going to work? How involved were you in the planning or any other aspects uh, of that project? Uh, I was in charge of it all. When they told us they were going to go full board, there was a lot of resistance. Most people, I have said it before, and other people, most people don't give enough credit to Shane McMahon and John Laurinaitis because they both both pushed for it heavily, heavily to for One Night Stand to come back as well as for um, the rebirth. And it was a lot because of those two guys, and they went to bat for a lot of people, myself included. Um, uh, for about three months of pre-planning, uh, I had total nirvana because I was in charge of it all. They were still not the happiness with Paul Heyman. And Paul was, I was already his boss running the developmental system, which is now NXT. But uh, yeah, they didn't like Paul then. And then I was going to be the boss and I had, a, you know, Vince was always like, you got to keep him under wraps. <laughs> and that's really, really hard to do. But I mean, me and Paul still had a, a good relationship and, uh, you know, that thought all changed. And once it started becoming, I was able to hire a lot of men and women from the original ECW. And I was also able to hire a lot of people that then got brought up because it, you know, a new, a new show opens up more, more spots. And, you know, it's that whole trickle down effect where more guys get called up and you got to fill up the rosters. It was cool. I know a lot of people crap all over WWE's ECW because it wasn't as special as it it could. Um, I also feel it was set up to fail uh, just for the sake of we started touring before we even were on TV. And we also had no budget whatsoever to help to let people know that that show is going on. And uh, it was successful. To its points, we debuted at the arena, which was awesome. Uh, and once I saw it, it was becoming, even from that pay-per-view, I saw it was becoming more of a WWE product. I had to start backing away. And, you know, I look at things from a sports background. I feel, I you know, I wrote agented the 2005 one. I brought WWE to the Super Bowl and I was the head coach, whatever. And then the next year it didn't do the same numbers. So you lost in the Super Bowl or you lost in the conference championships. 
And to me, that proves, oh, maybe I should go with that guy. But they, that's not what they were thinking. And so I kind of was happy in my role of just going back as a full-time performer because I really was never the happiest person working behind the scenes because I really felt I had more in my career to offer. And uh, so I was happy to be able to go back and I'm still wrestling today. Piggybacking off you saying that you needed to back up a little bit once you saw uh, where the brand was headed. Now ECW's out full-time on the road. It's a full-time touring brand. And after the December to dismember pay-per-view, Paul Heyman exits the WWE. It said he exits after a disagreement with Vince McMahon over creative for the pay-per-view. Clearly, you're frustrated at this point also uh, with how things are going with the brand. Did you ever contemplate asking for your release like Paul did? Uh, I don't know if the Paul part is necessarily true, but that's uh, for you to ask him on your podcast. After that show, I actually had a meeting with Vince and I went into, I asked for my release and Vince told me no. We had an awesome conversation and uh, a lot of things changed after that. Um, the, a lot of people, when you talked about for the beauty of ECW, we were allowed to go to our boss and tell him ideas and sometimes he would go with it. Sometimes he would just listen to you. Um, I've always had that relationship with Vince where if I had an issue, I can go and talk to him. And after that pay-per-view, I quit. And he wouldn't let me quit. And then we had a nice little sit-down and things changed. Of course, we're talking with Tommy Dreamer, the innovator of violence. You can follow him on Twitter at the Tommy Dreamer House of Hardcore. Tommy Dreamer's House of Hardcore returns to the 2300 Arena Saturday night, November 18th. Tickets are on sale, houseofhardcore.net. You spoke a bit earlier about Dusty and doing some indie events for him, and some of your ring gear has even been inspired by him. What made him so special to you, and what makes him so special in the wrestling world before he passed? Dusty Rhodes was my hero. Um, I saw him live in Florida, and I was 10 years old, 9 years old, and I was literally frozen and watching him wrestle. And it was him and Bugsy McGraw versus Dick Murdoch and Ivan Koloff. And the moment I saw him, I was, I was captivated. They had this match. And then I remember as soon as the match was over, I turned, I bought my first ever wrestler eight by 10 was a bloody picture of Dusty Rhodes, but he made me believe and he made me, um, know what I wanted to do at that early of an age. I was hooked on wrestling since the first time I saw it, but Dusty made me believe he was my hero. I got to work with my hero and become great friends with him in WWE. And that's another thing with the WWE ECW brand. He was one of the writers, but when I worked in the office, he worked across the hall for me and I got to hang out with Dusty Rhodes on a, you know, weekly basis and just, you know, which for me is just awesome. He had come and why I, I always would joke around with Paul Heyman because I would say he's like Darth Vader. There is some good in him. And he had done something nice for Dusty Rhodes when Dusty Rhodes was down on his luck because Dusty helped 
Paulie get into WCW, and when Dusty was down on, you know, after WCW, he came to ECW and was working with us. That's where I initially met him. I got to tag with him, become friends with him. I helped him when we did, you know, ECW goes out of business. And uh, his influence then, you know, was he was the original guy in NXT and has helped so many people who are stars today. I wear, till the day I die, I will wear polka dots on my pants because I just want people, when people see that, it reminds them of him and he should never be forgotten just because if it wasn't for Dusty Rose, there would be no Tommy Dreamer. Because I don't know what I would have done. I think I would have been a heavy set baseball player. <laughs> now, Tommy, with you exiting the WWE in 2010, stints in Impact Wrestling as well as working the independents all over the world, you go ahead and you launch House of Hardcore in 2012. Can you explain the thought process to us behind wanting to start House of Hardcore, behind wanting to start a wrestling company after being a wrestler for so long? I think it's just a natural progression. Uh, I've I did it so much behind the scenes in WWE running, I mean, in ECW, then doing it in WWE running two developmental systems at one point. Uh, it was just a natural progression for me. I always just wanted to do one show, and we did the one show. And when people remind me of uh, that, I was like, yeah, but, you know, you can't say I've been in business for five years or, you know, coming up on five years because I only did one show. And then... uh the next year I just did two shows and I always, you know, the first show was beyond successful and then the next two were really, really good. And I was like, Hmm, I'm onto something. And then, you know, I've been running pretty steadily ever since, you know, pretty much going monthly now all over the world, uh, you know, going to Toronto, which said, man, I'm really onto something. And, you know, I had a little TV deal with the fight notice, little baby steps that I've been taking, but it was just, to me, the natural progression. And I, you know, I always say if I hit the Mega Millions or the Powerball, which I need to check my tickets, uh, I forgot to do that this morning, I would never want to compete with WWE. I just want to offer something different. Uh, we're wrestling fans. I grew up in the 80s where I got to see world-class wrestling, Mid-South wrestling. I got to see all these different wrestling shows. I just want to show people my vision of professional wrestling. It has paid off for me and the fans and going to continue on my journey. October 6, 2012, Tommy, Mid-Hudson Civic Center, Poughkeepsie, New York. Sean Devari versus Crowbar is the first match in House of Hardcore history, a match I had the pleasure of being in the ring for. As that match went to the ring, was the thought just to give the fans the best show possible, or did you have the idea that you want to provide the alternative and in five years, say in 2017, you still want to be running House of Hardcore? No, like I said, it was just, it was one show. And uh, if it hit, I would done, you know, I'd think about it again. It took me a while to want to do it again. And then, uh, you know, like I said, we did two shows the next year. And then after that, we really started picking up some, you know, some steam. Uh, that's when the business side kicks in uh, to it. When you, I think I could do this. Now I'm, you know, it's a full-time job. I love it as well as doing, you know, other indies. But my main focus is, you know, House of Hardcore for now. 
All right, hey, we're going to do the last question right here. After we do the last question, I sign it off. Don't hang up, all right? Okay. All right. Tommy, last question. Many people are going to remember you for various reasons. The workers are going to remember Tommy Dreamer in one way. The fans are going to remember Tommy Dreamer in another. When this is all said and done for you and you wrap your career up and you finally go home, how does Tommy Dreamer want to be remembered? Uh, A guy who followed his dreams and a guy who worked very, very hard and just a, a blessed wrestling fan that was able to do something that he loved. You know, I always say if I died tomorrow, I'd be sad because of, you know, my daughters, but don't, I don't want people to cry for me. I don't want people, I want people to go and watch me wrestle and watch stuff like that. Cause that's when I'm pretty much the happiest in my life. And always, you know, I just, I've always loved this. I watch wrestling every day still. And just remember me as a guy who really loved doing something that he wanted to do his whole life and worked very, very hard. And, you know, it, that could be you. That should be you. Uh, that's kind of, I guess, how I should be remembered. Well, you know, Tommy, I, you know, I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for me in my career and the things you continue to do for me, including being our guest on the debut episode of the Wrestler Core podcast. Thank you very much, man. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And I will come back on your 100th episode. <laughs> what makes Dreamer think that we're going to be here for 100 episodes? I think he feels the passion of this podcast and the excitement that's going to build throughout these interviews that we will have. We have such a great guest list coming up soon. We're not going to tell you yet because that's what teases do, but it's going to be huge. You know he's a certified lunatic, right? I I learned that the first time I literally was able to, well, not shake his hand, but kind of fist bump him, was at that House of Hardcore event as he was covered in his own blood, just cheesing from ear to ear, so happy, so thrilled to be a part of this business. His passion for it is undeniable. You just said it. Even after all of these years... There, there isn't anybody with, with more passion who loves wrestling. Literally, he breaks it on Twitter every time. Literally, everything is wrestling to him. Everything. It, I, I've always wondered this, and maybe I should have asked him this, but I didn't want to be insulting or anything of that nature. Like, what has to be weird in your mind? And I'm weird, too, so don't get me wrong. That makes you want to go out and bleed for a living. And not only bleed for a living, but be so happy about it. He is so passionate about putting on a show for these people, for the wrestling world. It's, it's infectious. He feels like it's giving back to the fans for everything that they've given him throughout his 25-year career. It's unbelievable. It really is. I mean, I watched him go to that ring and put his body on the line and come back just happy. It's amazing. He, I, I truly believe Tommy Dreamer is at his happiest when he's in the middle of that ring. And you could really tell. And that's what we hope to bring you through this podcast and through some of the interviews that we have the passion that these guys actually have and ladies they have for this sport, for this business is really unbelievable. Well, I've said it before and I I'll say it again and I'll continue to say it. I consider Tommy dreamer, my wrestling father for everything he's done for me in the business. He was actually the one who signed me to WWE. He was the one who told me I was getting hired. So, and how old were you by the way, when you did that? I was nine. I want to say I was 19 going on 20 or I was already 20. Either way, we'll get to that story down the line. I'm really curious to see how that all developed. Sure. We can go through all that, but I still think I'm the youngest referee hired in WWE history. I'm not totally sure on that, but I think I'm right. We're going to hold you to it because it's more fun for our podcast that way. So even if it's somebody else is younger, I don't care. You're the youngest in my mind.